welcome to Cover Stories with Just Life, the U.S. Just Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in depth about each month's Just Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Just podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Just Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org. Our guest today is Edward Stephen Doyle, better known as just Steve or Stephen Doyle. He was the youngest person to ever serve as president of U.S. Chess when he was in office from 1984 to 1987. He is also a past president of the New Jersey State Chess Federation, where he served in one capacity or another for over 20 years, in addition to his six years as president, and is a past president of the U.S. Chess Trust. His chess politics were actually international in scope, as he was a FIDE vice president from 1996 to 2006, and he remains the only living American to be an honorary member of FIDE. In the non-chess world, he holds an MBA and has been a senior officer at two Fortune 500 companies, from chief financial officer to president of major divisions at Prudential and at Aetna, where he recently retired as a senior vice president. So, to fill his time, he got elected, as one does, as mayor of the borough of Island Heights, New Jersey, which is located about two hours south of New York and two hours east of Philadelphia. But what he is perhaps most well-known for currently, and what brings him to our show today, is as the organizer of the U.S. Amateur Team East, which is our cover story in the June edition of Chess Life. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Steve Doyle. Thank you, Dan. So, talk a little bit about the history of the U.S. Amateur Team East uh, and how you got involved with it. Yeah, so uh, the team started in 1971 in uh, Pennsylvania. And the first year that it was held, Donald Byrne was on the winning team it was from Penn State. Uh, after that, it moved to Atlantic City uh, and, and really was in the, uh, the pre-gambling days in Atlantic City. Uh, and the team really just started to grow. People started to come to it from uh, the uh, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, Delaware area. Uh, then we expanded into, uh, into New England. And it really started to grow uh, uh, tremendously uh, in the 70s. Until gambling uh, came in, and then we moved it around a few times uh, in the you know, state, and ended up in Somerset as its uh, penultimate home for a long, long time before we moved to Parsippany. The event has grown into our most successful um, event, non-scholastic event on the U.S. chess calendar each year. Uh, the stats from this last edition include 323 teams, 1,346 players, 8 GMs, and 13 IMs. What, what do you think has made it so popular? You know, I've often sat back and reflected on the history of the team and how it's evolved over the years. Uh, you know, first of all, it's you know, really the foremost reunion on the entire East Coast every year of, of friends seeing friends in a, in a collegial way. Uh, but also, it's fierce chess. I mean, they really fight for the the clock prizes that we have, uh, and I watch that. But it's also fun. Uh, people enjoy uh, you know the competition for the best name prize and the and the nuance involved around that is it, it's really it, it's hysterical. There's just I mean, we just laugh all weekend at the cleverness of the names 
that you know, the players enjoy them too. There's they're so um, uh, hip with uh, whatever the current thing is, and that thing could be you know a movie. It could be a, a political aspect. Uh, it could be something that's you know that's happened in society. Uh, but you know whatever it is, the you know, the chess nuance that that comes out of it is you know I think one of the most interesting aspects of the tournament. Uh, and I think it really is, you know, it's one of our drivers uh, year after year. And I'm going to tease that a little bit later for our best question contest. Uh, that specifically will be referring to the, the team name. So next year, you'll be celebrating the 50th edition of this event that started in 1971. It must be an incredible amount of work for you each year with such a large event, and especially given that you had such a demanding career, and you know, and now presumably a, d- a demanding job as mayor of your borough. What is it that you get out of this event each year as a as an organizer? You know, it's funny. I've had other uh, uh, chief executive officers of you know companies that just just mind boggled by the fact that I managed uh, all those years to organize this event. Uh, you know, first of all, the team has a team, uh, so it's not just the, you know, the act of one person. But we are all volunteers. It's not. Uh, there's no. Uh, many of the other largest events either have the U.S. Chess Federation or some very large private, uh, uh, privately owned companies that are responsible for putting them on. They have full time employees. This is really the only one uh, of this size that has uh, dedicated volunteers. But we do have them. Uh, and, and, you know, and they really work hard and we, and we divide things up in such a way that everybody does their share, whether it's, uh, dealing with people, uh, by email and phone, uh, before the event, helping them line up teams or whether it's sending out the prizes once the event is over, uh, or helping with some of the advertisement, uh, or uh, various components of the hotel work that has to get done ahead of time. And then of course we all arrive together and set up the, uh, uh, uh the venue, uh, as a team, so uh, the team's team, which is the uh, the people behind, really uh, you know, the people there, like Carol Jarecki and Sophia Rode, and, you know, and others that have been around for decades. Joe Ippolito sends out the prizes, and you know these people have been on staff for thirty plus years or more, and that's really that's really part of the magic behind the tournament. How big a volunteer staff do you have at this event? We're about fifteen to twenty uh, in most years. Uh, and uh, that includes my wife. I got my wife involved long ago. Happy, li- oh, happy wife, happy life. Make sure you have your family supporting the event. Uh, my kids used to play. We made it a whole event for the weekend. The kids would play on the team. My wife would help uh, with all the paperwork, and the whole family would be part of it. My you know, my sons would help me move all the uh, you know all the paper boards, all the chess equipment, etc. Every year, load up the car, unload the car. So it really was a family effort as well. And that's also part of the you know, the magic. We had our own uh, family routines as it dealt with the team tournament. And I guess that's how I fitted in with my incredible work schedule. There were some years where the next morning I'd leave for some uh, 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 port of call somewhere around the world. I think there was only one year I had to leave uh, just a few hours early. I think I had a, a 9 p.m. flight one Monday to China, and I had to leave uh, just before we ended that one year. Uh, but but these are the, uh, you know, those are the challenges when you try and balance a career with uh, 
uh, we're running an event of this size. When you got married, did she have any idea of how big a role chess was going to play in her life? Uh, I think she had an inkling because uh, I, you know, I had already been president of the chess federation, so she got to meet Bernadette. Got to meet a lot of the uh, of the chess folks because I always considered the chess family as part of my, uh, you know, family. Uh, I have a lot of very dear friends, uh, you know, through chess. Uh, well, not only nationally, but internationally as well. Uh, and uh, she certainly did get a little inkling of that beforehand. I actually had her on the uh, team tournament uh, world charts one year before we were married. Uh, and and uh, oh, she worked on the world charts before, uh, you know, uh, uh, before they were computerized. You did them by hand, and they were all around a room. Uh, and uh, there was a certain professor from uh, Princeton who played that year uh, and, and was found writing on the uh, uh, wall charts. Uh, and and uh, she became a little annoyed at that. And, and, uh, and you can well imagine, I think they, uh, they had made a movie about his life uh, with John Nash. He was a terrific person. Uh, but he was writing on the wall charts, which is anybody knows you never do that when you're uh, in the, uh, uh, the world chart room unless you're the designated person so that was kind of a funny story from a, a pretty famous person back in the day i wish i'd saved that because it was a little mathematical for me yeah no i had no idea about that story that's the first i've ever heard that he played in the event yep. um so you, you mentioned um that you know being president and i i mentioned it as uh in, in the introduction as well uh, I, I indicated you were the youngest president ever, which is a record I believe still stands. Uh, how old were you in 1984? I was 23, uh, and uh, it was a great experience for me. Uh, one, I had boundless, en- a boundless energy in those days. Uh, you know, I guess I still uh, have a bit of that, but I had a lot more in those days, uh, and uh it was a very good growing experience for me and you know one I'm always grateful for, uh, not only for the opportunity that I had at the time, but what I was able to accomplish with the team of uh, folks that helped me do it. How did you have the necessary experience and expertise at such a, let's call it a tender age for presidency of a national organization? Well, I had been actively involved in you know chess uh, leadership already for 10 years by that point i was president of my club but you know in my early teens and uh active in the state i think i was state treasurer 15 or 16 i remember we had to call the bank to see if a minor could sign a check um so was you know those were all some chess backgrounds always a very enthusiastic chess person so i knew a lot of 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 uh, chess personalities but uh you know i you know i always think that i had uh, good people skills uh, that I was able to use and and uh, I'd majored in business in college and and uh, that already I was already on my way as an established uh, employee at a large fortune 100 company then you know, at that time prudential uh, and uh, you you know you learn as you go and you have good mentors and, and uh, if you can get people to work together which I was able to do um, you know, that was really part of the formula for success. And, and it's been, you know, 30 years now since you were president. What, what do you see as improved in U.S. chess as an organization in the, in the intervening 30 years? And what do you think you, you wish was the same as it was in the 80s? Well, I think that the, uh, the improvements, you know, obviously uh, the fact now that the, the USCF is a charity is helpful. Uh, 
uh, the 501c3 status is helpful uh, to the organization. Uh, uh, the secure tax deductible uh, the, uh, donations. I think the fact that we've got some really strong players again, uh, like Caruana and Nakamura, uh, certainly help us uh, and you know helps us internationally as well. And it gives the the uh, chess players something to follow. Uh, I feel like chess is oh, it goes and ebbs and flows uh, in terms of uh, its level of success. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, I think we're going through one of those periods where chess is on the upswing. I think we had some periods where uh, the internet had taken some uh, some people, but I think people enjoy that face to face camaraderie and playing at a club. And, and it's nice to see local clubs, at least in New Jersey, are, are flourishing again, uh, and local tournaments the same. Uh, I think that's all very consistent over the years, and those are all positive. I think that, that some of the changes that that we made back in those days, like starting the, the Hall of Fame and Museum, uh, which a lot of people thought that was you know not a good idea at the time, but a lot of people supported it in the past, and we you know now have a terrific uh, venue uh, uh, that exists for that. We started Schoolmates uh, during my time, now our chess life for kids, the second publication uh, for youth. I think that was a real strong element. Uh, you know, uh, for growth of youth chess in the country, we took the, the national scholastic tournaments uh, and we brought them up, you know, under the uh, USCF uh, banner. Those were previously privately run uh, and organized, and they weren't part of the national uh, chess scene under US chess. So we made those major changes, and those things I think have really grown into really institutions, our scholastic. You know, uh, uh, structure and and the backbone are a re- a recognition uh, through the museum and the Hall of Fame. I think is another area that really it really uh, helps us with our history and you know and people understanding our past and recognizing great achievement um, uh, on the board. And I think all of those things help us uh, every day. Uh, and, and I look back and I'm very. Uh, happy that it all turned out the way it did. You mentioned one thing that I was unaware of. Uh, you, when you mentioned schoolmates, you said the second publication for kids. W- what was the first? I'm sorry. It started, it was the second publication of the USCF. Ah, okay. Oh, uh, schoolmates was the original name, and then it morphed, uh, morphed into Chess Life for Kids. And for our listeners that don't know, Schoolmates originally was uh, bound into Chess Life itself before it became a, a, a separate publication that's that's now Chess Life Kids. Uh, do you remember who who did the first edition, who was the editor, or who might have been on staff? Um, boy, that's a great question, and, and uh, usually I can remember those things, and uh uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on who the first editor was. Well, if it if it happens to uh, occur to you during the rest of the show, feel free to to chime in on that. Um, Will do. And let's let's pivot from chess politics uh, from your presidency of U.S. Chess to real world politics. How, how did you come to find yourself the mayor of Island Heights? Well, uh, this is a town that I've always had an association with. Uh, years ago, I grew up at the Jersey Shore. Uh, Always have maintained a home here. It was a summer home for uh, about three decades. Uh, but this is where uh, uh, we have a strong family uh, relationship here to the town. And, and I think as you, after having a successful career and done a lot of different things, there's a, 
there's a strong desire to give back to your community in a meaningful way. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's easy for, for uh, you know, folks uh, to, uh, to write a check for a local charity or, or, to, or to fund some major project in town. Uh, you know, those are nice things and, you know, everybody appreciates your generosity, but really rolling up your sleeves and getting involved in, in town government and making sure that you're doing the right thing for the people that you care about in the town that you care about. Uh, that was my way to give back as part of my, uh, uh, uh my role, uh, with the community. What are the demographics of Island Heights and what are some of the particular challenges you're, you're facing as mayor? Uh, well, the town was founded, uh, you know, in 1878, so it's an old town, 140 years, uh, and it's in Ocean County. Uh, it is uh, one of the premier towns here at the Jersey Shore. Uh, we have one of the top-rated elementary schools in our town, uh, and, and we've got great services uh, provided for our residents. We're about uh, 2,000 folks uh, year-round, and we swell in the summertime to somewhere around 3,000 people. Strong boating area, so we have a lot of sailboats and powerboats. There's there's uh, uh, three marinas in town, so we get a very large uh, summer population from our boating community. Uh, but, but uh, you know, as with any town that's got some age to it, 140 years, your infrastructure has some challenges, whether you're dealing with the water, uh, you know, structure, the pipes, um, you know, all of the... You know, all of the nuanced things, buildings age, uh, and just finding the money to be able to make those repairs and keep things in tip-top shape is always a challenge for a town government. And maintaining a, a, a successful cost of living that is reasonable for the town and reasonable for the people that live in it, i.e. a tax base. You can't, you, know, you can't just raise everything through tax. You have to be prudent and fiscally responsible about how you spend the people's money. We had one other mayor on our sister podcast, uh, One Move at a Time, Mike Ryan of Sunrise, Florida, and he's using chess as a key aspect of his administration's uh, policies for Sunrise. Are you using chess in any way in Island Heights? Well, uh, you know, many years ago, I learned how to think ahead, uh, you know, in chess, and you know that you know, that served me well. In my corporate roles, you know, I often had a strategy role uh, that I was assigned to develop the company's strategy uh, and how we would move forward uh, in the marketplace. Uh, you know, and towns are no different. You have to plan ahead, especially when you're doing a complicated project and organizing. And I learned all of that through chess, how to organize, how to make something start and then finish. Uh, and, and you have to know how to plan, just like when you play chess. So there's certainly that aspect. Uh, and I do teach chess at the elementary school level uh, uh, here in the town. So I do participate in that. Now some of the other towns have invited me to come over there and also uh, start some chess programs uh, uh, for them. But uh, I'm being a little more careful outside of town because I just don't have the time to uh, uh, be able to do that. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm feeling exhausted just hearing everything you do. <laughs> um, now, so going back to the... The U.S. Amateur Team East. Uh, you know, you're well known um, for the contests and giveaways that that you do during the event. Um, what's the favorite gimmick you've pulled off? Well, I like to uh, give away uh, prizes to the you know the players. Uh, you know, it started. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing it for decades now. Uh, 
you know, and I have my usual routine, you know, I'll ask for certain coins or we'll, uh, you know, or things in people's pockets. So I'll notice what people are wearing and I'll ask for odd colors, uh, you know, or sports memorabilia that you know people might be wearing, uh, things like that. But then I just amaze myself. Sometimes I just throw out something completely random and somebody has it, you know, uh, you know, like a library card from, you know, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And sure enough, and, and it just completely random. And somebody just happened to have a library card or whatever it was. Uh, and, and, you know, and sometimes, uh, you know, those uh, other the randomness of, of, of things. You know, I remember one time I said, does anybody have a copy of The Catcher in the Rye? And sure enough, some kid had a copy of it. Now, okay, with all of those people, you would think that some, you know, some high school student would be reading it anyway. So it probably made sense. But uh, those things just come to me sometimes when I'm standing at the microphone and I just ask for them and people know it. Uh, you know, one of the you know, most interesting things I think I did uh, last year, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of research about world champions that have come to New Jersey at different times. Uh, and we've had virtually almost every world champion, with just a few exceptions from Paul Morphy forward, have been in New Jersey at different times. And I've researched some of that. Uh, one of the questions I threw out, what former world chess champion uh, a grandmother was institutionalized here in Parsippany? Uh, and, and, you know, people, you know, like threw out all sorts of names, but as it turned out, it was Bobby Fisher's grandmother was institutionalized. The state institution is also in Parsippany. Uh, so just an uh, you know, ironic piece of information that, that crossed a, a, a former world champion's uh, life. Uh, and things like that, you know, like whether, uh, like what uh, uh, world champion went to school in New Jersey? Capablanca. What world champion lived in New Jersey? Steinitz. And people just don't know all these facts, but it's a story that one of these days maybe I'll send to you when I finally get done writing it up, but uh, you know, yeah, that that's that is fascinating. I would have had I had no idea on any of that. Was that Fisher's maternal grandmother? I assume. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now going back over the decades, is there one particular year's East event that stands out above the others? I think one of my uh, favorite years uh, for players was the year that we had. You know, Karpov played in his first United States uh, tournament. Uh, or open tournament in the, you know, the U.S. And he played in, in 98 here, and he played all six rounds. So that was certainly a favorite. Uh, but one of the uh, years, uh, the gimmick uh, had to be my favorite. Uh, the name of the team was the Scotch Gambiteers, uh, and, and they actually came in from each doors. It was even a surprise to me. They were playing the bagpipes. And, and, and they came in each door of the ballroom, each one separately, the four guys on the team through the four doors. And, and, and they both were playing, you know, they all were playing the bagpipes and, and they were all dressed in, you know, in Scottish kilts and, uh, just brought the house down. Uh, that was, that was one of my favorites, but there are many of those, uh, like the year we had that professional band that was also a family of chess players who came and they actually had written a song, a Beatles song to chess themes. Uh, and, and it was hysterical and well done. And they sounded good too. Uh, so there's a handful of things like that that stand out. Uh, and, uh, I remember them even to this day. 
The key question about the Scotch Gambiteers is, did they play the bagpipes well? Yes, they did, actually. <laughs> they did. They played them very well. Okay, good. Yeah, I imagine a time penalty of some sort would have been imposed if they had not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who was on Karpov's team? Uh, Ron Henley was on the team, and Anatoly Karpov. And, uh, you know, I remember those two, and I don't remember the other two. So. They must have been, uh, uh, they would have had to have been low-rated class players, right? Yes, I think the fourth board was a, a, a very low-rated player, uh, just to pull the average down out of the 2199. Right. So we've mentioned, you know, the gimmicks and the team names a lot. So I think this is a good time to segue into our best question contest, which is sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales, the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. Now, both of the, I'm going to read questions from two people. Um, two of our listeners, and both of them are related to the team name contest. The first one from uh, Ben Johnson, who does the Perpetual Chess Podcast, I think you may have already answered. Um, what's your favorite U.S. Amateur Team East team name of all time? Oh, well, team name, well, that was team gimmick. Uh, my favorite team name uh, probably was the year that we had Searching for Bobbitt Stitcher. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> was, which was, uh, that was the year that, that, and I had gone to the premiere, uh, of, of the weight skin movie searching for Bobby Fisher just earlier. I think it was in January, if I recall. Uh, and, and uh, of course now we're in February. Uh, and right around that same time we had the whole Bobbit thing, which, you know, I won't regale everybody with that, but I'm sure they know the story. Uh, and then for somebody to, you know, again, merge those two into a chess read, cause it has to be a chess related uh, name, uh, you know, searching for Bobbit stitcher. Uh, I, I thought it was brilliant, and it had to be one of the funniest things that that I remember uh, on the stage as I opened the envelope from the judges because they hand me the envelope cold uh, with the the top twelve names, and then the players vote on it. Uh, and, and so the first time I see them, sometimes they get my reaction live. Sometimes I hadn't noticed a funny name that might have been in the you know the list because some of them can be settled with 300 plus teams uh you know they can get lost in the menu if it's, if it's uh, large uh you know uh and often it is so sometimes i wouldn't notice that sometimes i'm seeing it live as i'm reading it so uh you know that was uh, one of my uh, favorites of all time. Okay. And and now, and the question I selected is the best question. It's kind of a multi-part question, but it all relates to this same topic. Comes from Women's International Master uh, and Dr. Alexi Root, who is also a former U.S. Women's Champion and uh, very dedicated about sending us questions. So thank you, Alexi. Her question is, what advice can Steve Doyle give a team wanting to win the best team name prize at the World Amateur Team East? For example, are pop culture references a key to winning, or should one use a famous chess player's name in one's team name? You know, uh, both have won over the years from Baked Alaska, 
to ever ready uh and they uh had shirts with batteries with chess players on them uh you know uh there were others uh where they've taken uh uh, uh grandmaster names and made very clever uh common phrases from them like the Tarash collectors that was a winner one year um but it's often prop reference but but it's been both over the years uh, you don't really see uh, um, uh, the old Grandmaster names. I think they've kind of gone through those now. Um, but there's always the new guys that are coming out, and you know, and ladies, and you know, that's that's always a big aspect. Um, you know, I, I remember the Vera Menchek brigades. Uh, one year we had about four teams. They were all made up of women. And they were the Virometric Brigades. And, you know, you know Virometric was a very big uh, female player back in the day, uh, very famous. Uh, and ever since then, the team tournament became one of the largest open tournaments uh, you know, in the uh, country that has one of the largest female participations, uh, you know, at, at all ages. Uh, and, you know, and that's another uh, really uh, nice aspect, too. So, uh, to Dr. Root's question, uh, I think anything can win. It just depends on the year, and it depends how clever it is. Uh, what's interesting, uh, your Vera Minchik uh, mention is interesting to me because she also rated a mention in the May edition of Ladies' Night, our other sister podcast hosted by Jennifer Shahadi. So uh, Vera is still relevant today. Yes, absolutely. Steve, before I let you go, uh, this is our 80th anniversary year at U.S. Chess, and I'm asking all my guests this year on the the same question: What has U.S. Chess meant to you? Oh, that's that's a that that's a really special question. Uh, you know, I started being involved in chess as a young teen, right after the Fisher Spassky match. Fell in love with chess. I have one of the largest antiquarian chess books collections in the country. Uh, and, and I certainly have one of the largest chess set collections in the country too. So, uh, uh, you know, and then I have chess stamps and, and all sorts of, you know, almost anything chess, I guess I collect. Uh, but most of all, I collect friends. Uh, and, and that I think is one of the most special things to me. The people that I've met in chess from the rich and the famous to the average and the, you know, and the everyday, uh, it's been a, a cross section of people, uh, you know, that is unique, uh, all bright, all very gifted. Uh, there's obviously a few that are just a little different, but that's okay. Uh, it's the richness of life. And I think you know, just meeting and knowing all of those chess players from, uh, you know, all different walks of life has been one of the most enjoyable aspects of chess. There's nothing better than playing a game of chess. Uh, you know, at the club, I try and go to my club on Thursdays uh, down at the Thomas River Chess Club. I've, I've become a member again. It's it's uh, it's a great club, uh, and just sitting down and playing a nice game of chess, and every once in a while, winning, uh, you know, is always is always a pleasure. But sometimes losing is fun too. I've mentioned all your past presidencies. I believe you were also a past president of the Thomas River Chess Club. Yes, uh, and, and, <laughs> and that was one of my, uh, you know. Uh, most enjoyable, uh, you know, gigs of all time. We had uh, a parade of grandmasters that I got to meet uh, per- you know, up close and personal. You know, Botfinex ever uh, only a U.S. exhibition. Mikhail Tal. I took him to Atlantic City. I think you've heard that story a few times. 
um, you know, uh, his skills at the roulette table. Uh, Spassky, Karpov, Kasparov, uh, virtually every U.S. Grandmaster. Uh, uh, and, and it's really just been a, you know, a terrific experience of being involved at the local level, the national level, and then the international level. So I've got to experience all levels of it. So it's been uh, it's been a great experience in my life. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on our show. I understand you have some official government business you have to attend to. So I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, uh, and good luck as you approach the 50th edition of the U.S. Amateur Team East in 2020. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the time tonight. It's now time for the Skittles Room segment on Cover Stories with Chess Life, where we talk to people who are doing things interesting in the U.S. chess world. And joining us this month, because we're in the midst of an election season for the executive board, is Ken Ballou, the chair of the U.S. Chess Elections Committee. Welcome to Cover Stories, Ken. Thank you, Dan. So, Ken, tell us uh, how long you have been chair of the election committee and served on the election committee, and then let's also talk a bit about exactly what your committee is responsible for. Yes, I've been on the election committee since 2010, and I have been chair of the election committee since 2013. The committee is basically responsible for overseeing elections for the executive board. It is a delegate-appointed committee. It operates entirely outside the purview of the executive board, which of course is good because it avoids a conflict of interest. Are there any other other elections besides executive board elections that your committee handles? No, there are not. As I was asking that question, I was thinking, I can't think of any other kind of election other than things that happen maybe internally within committees themselves. That's correct. And of course, there's the executive board election of its own officers, president, vice president, uh, secretary, and vice president of finance. That's entirely an executive board issue. It's handled internally to the executive board. Now, as this we're recording this uh, at the end of May. The ballots are scheduled to be mailed out to registered voto- voters on June 7th, which means that like early in the week of June 10th, people will start to receive their ballots. Uh, d- d- describe what, what people who are registered voters can expect to see when they get that ballot. You will see basically an almost full-page letter at the beginning giving lots of voting instructions that can be summarized as vote for no more than two candidates or up to two write-ins. There's space provided for write-ins. If you're voting for a write-in candidate, it is not required, but it is strongly suggested to include the U.S. Chess ID number for your write-in to make sure we're accurately identifying for whom the voter is voting. Uh, Basically, there are a lot of John Smiths out there. We want to make sure we have the right one. I mentioned registered voters. Uh, It's now too late to register for this year's election, but if people want to register for next year's, how do they go about doing that? One can go to the MSA, Member Services Area, page, look oneself up, and check the registration status. If the member is registered, then it will just say registered voting member, and that's it. Once registered, always registered unless your membership lapses. If you're not registered, but you're eligible to register, 
it will say that you're eligible to register and it will give you a link to go to the voter registration page. When you go to that page, you need to provide your member ID, your birth date, and your PIN, which can be found either on the mailing label of Chess Life or was sent to you with your membership card. If you don't have your PIN, you can also call the office to register. There, is also there are also instructions on that page to receive your PIN by email. To be eligible to register, you simply need to be at least 16 years of age by June 30th of the year that you're registering. And again, you only have to register once, and as long as your membership does not lapse, you will continue to be registered for all future elections. So one thing you just said that's interesting is age 16. How did it come to be pass in U.S. chess that we made 16 the voting age? I honestly don't know. That was actually before I was involved with the process. It was probably part of the reform that was called One Man, One Vote. Previously, instead of an executive board, we had a policy board that was elected by uh, about 550 members that were voters. Uh, it was done by regions, but this is all old history, and sometime in either the late 90s or the early 2000s, there was a Blue Ribbon Commission that introduced one man, one vote, and direct election of the executive board by U.S. chess members. And another thing that changed uh, in recent years, uh, it actually maybe further back than I'm remembering, is that we have staggered elections now, and so we have an election every year. Do you, can you speak to that a bit? Yes. We used to have elections every two years. Executive board members, of which there are seven, would be elected to four-year terms. So on the odd-numbered years, we would elect either four or three executive board members. In 2011, we changed over to having three-year terms. So now we have elections every year. Every third year, we elect three of seven executive board members. In the other two years, we elect two. And this year's election, uh, we, we have uh, only two people running for two, two spots. Uh, they're both incumbents, Mike Neatman uh, I'm sorry, Michael Hoffpower and Chuck Unra. Um, so uh, not a whole lot of suspense this year. Uh, obviously, there's always the write-in possibility, but I don't recall anybody ever winning an election via a write-in vote. Is, is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Several years ago, we did come close. Someone ran a serious write-in campaign. Uh, however, the two candidates listed on the ballot won that year's election. It's really, really difficult to run a successful writing campaign. I hope, listeners, that this information has uh, been of, of use to you. Please, if you've not registered to vote, uh, go ahead and do so, so you can be pre prepared for the 2020 election. Ken, thank you so much for the information and for joining us and for all the good volunteer work you do for U.S. Chess. Thank you very much. It's entirely my pleasure.
Thank you for joining us for the June edition of Cover Stories with Just Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Grandmaster Sam Shankland about the U.S. Championship. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the Donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.